Well, we have been working through the book of Acts. We're in chapter 9. We've seen two stories recently of conversion. We've looked at how God has been moving throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and these geographical places. The gospel's moving out and We've seen some individual encounters with Christ and the way pe- what it looks like for people to embrace Christ. And now we hit the spot in the narrative before the third conversion story where it's kind of this pause and this little break that's fascinating and has all kinds of little gold nuggets in it. So we're just going to stop and, and mine that this morning a bit. And uh, then in the new year, we'll continue looking at uh, the way the story unfolds. Um, next week, we'll pause for Advent and look at um, four weeks of, of witness to one greater, that is Christ and all that his birth means to us. But for today, we're going to continue and finish up chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, turn it to Acts 9, verse 23. Uh, it says this, and it's on the screen in case you don't have a Bible. Um, when many days had passed uh, since Saul, who you also know as Paul, had embraced Jesus as Lord, been baptized, and started proclaiming the gospel, a radical conversion where God had stopped him in his tracks and shown him uh, who he is, alive, resurrected, and Jesus. Uh, When many days had passed since that story, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. And uh, But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Just stop right there, right? We're, this, is, this is the history of our witness, okay? We are part of a movement that has always had resistance. Uh, there is resistance in the Christian life. Uh, and for those of you who are possibly new to Christian faith, uh, and as well as those of you who have walked uh, a, a Christian journey for many years, you know that there is resistance in the Christian life. There's resistance in the spiritual life. Um, In fact, when you embrace Jesus, things don't get easier, do they? In fact, sometimes they just get plain harder, don't they? Right? There are times where we embrace Jesus and all of a sudden we now pick up all sorts of new burdens uh, that we didn't realize uh, were there because we pick up Christ's burdens. We become burdened for the world and we become more aware of resistance before you weren't aware of resistance because you were just going with the flow of the world, right? It didn't feel like resistance. But once you embrace Jesus, you actually start heading upstream. And so um, here's the good news, though. In the midst of this, as the story unfolds, Saul's life gets harder, right? There's resistance in a way. And yet he doesn't face that alone. There are disciples who walk that out with him. And And so this life that we have in Christ is not a life where we are without help. There is company. Uh, The disciples stick their necks out to save Saul. And and while we experience resistance, this is good news, we don't experience it alone. In fact, we always find strength in relationship. But relationships are not easy as we see. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 26. Uh, When he, that is Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. So he's now moved from Damascus where he was persecuting the church. He's embraced Jesus and all of his grace and what that means. And now he is uh, going to Jerusalem to check in with the guys who were eyewitnesses to Jesus before Saul. And so it says that 
when he had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join in, tried to get into a community group. Right? Like, I just I went to the community wall, and then this is what happened. Uh, they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Uh, we just need to stop right here. Um, they were afraid of him. Like, like, actually, you can't be in it. Uh, none of our communities are close to where you live. Sorry, I guess you just need to start your own. Uh, and so here's one of the challenges in Christian community, right from the get-go. Um, it's the way that our reputations have a tendency to become static or stuck rather than dynamic and defined by the Spirit. And so when the church in Jerusalem hears that Saul's with them, uh, their first instinct is to doubt the possibility that he's genuinely a Christian, right? Like their, their first instinct is fear. And that is actually uh, quite common today, isn't it, right? We retreat in fear for difference or for anything that seems like a threat. And so um, as the people here, he's there, they retreat in fear and Saul's work and reputation precedes him, right? They know he's a persecutor of the church. He's somebody who is dangerous or has been dangerous to the community. So naturally, people are afraid of him. But it says that they don't believe he's a disciple, um, which means this. It means that they actually made a decision somewhere along the lines in their relationships together about the kind of person Saul was based on part of his story, as a true part of his story, he did persecute the church. He did drag Christians off to jail. He did approve of the stoning murder of Stephen. These are true parts of his story, but they're not the complete picture of his story. And so uh, they, they didn't believe that the grace that they experienced applied to Saul. Right? They didn't believe he was a disciple, meaning grace couldn't be operative in his life. And so this is this point where we begin to see the Jerusalem church starts to have this slow-to-respond relationship to the Spirit of God. And it's going to get them, actually, in the end, it's going to get them stuck. Uh, and we'll see that in the chapters ahead. But this is a danger in any age for the church. That, and it's an issue that confronts Jerusalem here. And it's the issue of viewing the type of person that Saul is and it, and it challenges their readiness to accept him. And who can blame them, right? They, they know people, they love people, they have real relationships with people who've been hurt or imprisoned by this guy. So this isn't tame. This isn't a tame story. It's actually really gnarly. But the Damascus Christians, the Christians in the city where Saul became a Christian, demonstrated a sincere belief in the grace of God because they accepted him in, and they started relating to Saul on the basis of grace and not works. And you can always kind of tell how we relate to God based on how we relate to others, right? The, the vertical relationship we have with the Lord is always mirrored in the horizontal relationships we have with each other. If I genuinely believe God loves and accepts me, if I genuinely believe that my, my worst is utterly forgiven and wiped clean, it actually affects how I relate here. That I actually, when wounds and bitterness arise, I actually fight to release those things and release people from condemnation in my heart. It just genuinely works that way. And so the Jerusalem church, on the other hand, is slow to connect the dots. They're not connecting the dots between grace given and the grace God's calling them to extend. And so they operate at a distance from a former enemy. And, and this is what happens 
in the church when we make judgments of each other on true but partial information. We go, oh, that's true that this person failed in this way. That's true that this person hurt me in this way. But it's always partial because we take a moment and then we turn it into something eternal. Right? We say, well, that moment was painful and so therefore I will view them as limited by that moment. There was a, a temptation in community to have an experience and determine that because we know a part of the story, we know the whole story. Are you with me? Have you ever experienced this before? Been on the receiving or giving end of it, right? My guess is both. The result is that we end up freeze-framing a person in a moment rather than viewing them as an unfolding story. And it's a very dangerous thing. It's what's happening here in this text. That Saul is freeze-framed in a moment, true but partial, because there's actually more to his story. This is gold. I love this. The scriptures are so honest about the realities of Christian community. There's no gloss over how difficult it is to be in genuine Christian community. There's a messiness to it. But there's also a wisdom here if we have ears to hear. It's a wisdom about how scandalous the grace of God really is. And there's a scandal of God's grace that we genuinely minimize every time we freeze somebody in a moment. We minimize the grace of God. We neuter the grace of God and we disarm the grace of God every time we view somebody as just a moment rather than a story, okay? Uh, And maybe you have somebody you know, somebody who's been a part of the church or is a part of the church and, and you've stopped believing them to be a story and you see them as a moment. We have an opportunity based on this text to just change out our lenses today. I need to repent of that and begin to view them as an unfolding story. Because if we don't swap out our lenses, we miss out on the work of God in their life. God will keep working in their life. We just won't be a part of it. We'll miss out on the blessing of believing their sanctification. Okay? And maybe you've been the recipient of this attitude. You've been freeze-framed in a, in a decision and in a moment, and, and you know the ceiling that that puts on relationships and the distance that that can create between you and Christ's church, where Christians around you maybe have seen you as a moment rather than a story. And the good news is, according to the gospel, we are not just moments, we are stories. And if we are Christians, we're locked up in Christ's story, that we're dead with him and alive with him, uh, and that his person defines us, not our moments. Now, granted, moments have consequences, right? Moments have real consequences, and we can't lose sight of that, and I'm not minimizing that. But they're not the end of the story. And so, again, by me saying that, I'm not giving license to all the souls of the world to go on violating people for their own sense of personal gain or to ease their own anxiety. That's not the case, because Paul will later say, shall we continue sinning? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He understands that grace doesn't give license, it gives redemption. And so uh, this is an important question for us as we form as a new community, right? Um, Because guess what? We're all going to sin. We're all going to hurt each other. We're going to step on each other but we'll do way more damage if we refuse to have the capacity to forgive and allow stories to unfold redemptively. Are you with me? So this is the kind of church we have to be. 
Because, uh, and when someone has a pattern of hurting you over and over, uh, we need to be honest about it. Right? You don't keep trusting somebody the same way that you trusted them before trust was burned. But it means also that we don't limit people to their worst moment. Um, this has implications for us. And I think Henri Nouwen defines this probably, at least it's cheeky and it's my favorite way of defining community. So just look at what Nouwen says. Um, he says that community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. Right? This is, this is what we're getting here in Acts chapter 9. Community is the place where the person you least want to live with actually lives. Other, often, we surround ourselves with people we most want to live with, thus forming a club or a clique, not a community. Anyone can form a club. It takes grace, shared vision, and hard work to form a community. What do you think of that? Now when he gets it, right? Like he's, this is somebody who uh, had a career that was very prestigious, academic at Harvard, and then he, in the last years of his life, lives with mentally uh, handicapped people as their priest. Just absolutely submits himself to the needs of the community, and he learned so much and offers so much wisdom to us in the same. The result, if we live like this, is that we actually end up with community if we continue to believe redemption for each other and give a higher ceiling than our worst moments. Okay? The next thing that happens, however, is that Saul is not merely held at a distance because he has an advocate. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas, we were introduced to him back in chapter 4, I believe, yep, and he was, a, was somebody who had means, was generous, and had this name of son of encouragement. People thought he was an encouraging person. We can see why. He comes alongside the most despised person in the community and says, no, they're legit. Let me tell you about how they relate to Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, his hometown. Here's why I love this passage. You don't end up with a St. Paul without a Barnabas. You just don't. You St. Paul clearly has like one of the most brilliant minds in human history, right? At least that we're aware of. You can't write Romans and not be absolutely brilliant. But guess what? He's not self-sufficient. You don't get Paul without Barnabas. We don't operate in our gifting as if we're super people, right? We have to have each other. There's a mutuality and a, a need for each other, and even Paul needs a Barnabas to walk alongside him, to give him access to community, to advocate for him in his new story in Christ. Because Barnabas was willing to stake his own reputation for someone who was hated, because he was willing to inconvenience himself for the sake of God's mission, Saul got entrance into a community and was freed up to be who he was in Christ and to preach boldly. And then he goes home to Tarsus. 
where if he's going to face the world mission that's before him, he first has to go home. Because we all know home is the hardest place to be a witness, right? And so Saul has to go home and learn how to be an authentic witness to Jesus in his own familial relationships before he has uh, the privilege of taking the gospel to people he doesn't know. It's always easier to be a witness to people who are strangers than to people who live with you and know you and all of your junk. And so Saul has this privilege to go and be a witness at home first. But there's something I don't want us to miss, and that's that no one becomes a Paul without a Barnabas. There is no such thing as a self-sufficient Christian. So what this says to us, I think, is that we need to commit to being like Barnabas. We need to find other people and advocate for their growth and their belonging just as much as our own. And so we actually commit to walking alongside other people, right? pouring out into others, living a Barnabas-like hospitality, making space for other believers, investing in them, and encouraging them towards their ministry that God has called them to. That's actually the pattern with which we're called to walk. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that's the extent of where the gospel's gotten so far, the church throughout these regions had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, it multiplied. This is an awesome description, a description of what we hope to see in healthy churches. In fact, um, what's interesting here is that uh, Luke uses the singular word for church. So it's lots of locations throughout three regions, and yet he calls it the church. It is one people, one body, lots of locations. And the culture of this church, this body, this unified group of people sent on a mission is that they walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit. I love how these two things go together, by the way. There's a genuine reverence for who God is and all of His holiness, as well as an encouragement and comfort from the Spirit who's there present among us. And I don't think you can have one without the other. Sometimes we want comfort without any reverence, right? But we also shouldn't pursue reverence without the comfort of the Spirit. There's both the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. And together, the church, it caused the church to multiply. When you have this kind of relationship, he's personal, and yet he's also transcendent. You're aware of these things. It leads to the church moving in healthy ways and multiplying, which is what we're about at Colossae, right? We actually want to see the church be who it is, where it is. We want to grow larger by staying smaller. These are the phrases that we use to help frame in so much of our vision that we would see the church multiply. And guess what? We're the newest fruit of multiplication right? here in Beaverton, and there's more to come. And so the text then moves in verse 32, and it shifts focus from this summary now to Peter. And what I think is important here is Luke is mentioning Peter again because he was really the person who was carrying the mantle for the gospel in the first eight chapters. And now all of a sudden you have Paul or Saul. He's saved on the road to Damascus and he's going to play a major role and occupy the majority of the rest of the story in Acts after chapter 13. But I think just so we know that because God's working in Saul's life doesn't mean he's not working in Peter's life. We he's now included in the narrative again. He focuses back on Peter to validate Peter and say, just because God's working in somebody else's life doesn't mean he's not working in yours. Sometimes we get so jealous that, oh, God's doing this thing over here, and we forget that being faithful right here 
is just as much pleasing to God. So there's no, there's no competition in the kingdom. This is mutual. We're all pursuing the same end. And so here's the story. Peter comes down to the coastal region, and he meets a guy named Aeneas. And he, it's a fairly simple story. Aeneas is bedridden, and Peter just walks in, no drama, announces, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Okay, right? And so this intervention of God is profound, and there's healing, and then it leads to all these residents in the area turning to the Lord, is what it says. There's a demonstration of Jesus's power to restore a person, and it leads to other people being restored to Jesus. Um, There's no answers here as to why Aeneas is healed and other people aren't. It's just a simple story of God's mission moving forward, and in the wings of God's mission moving forward, there's healing and restoration. The mission of God always leaves healing and restoration as its footprint. Then the next story gets a little bit more attention from Luke. It gets more details. Now, this time, Peter goes to a town called Joppa. Verse 36, it says that there was, uh, in, now there was in Joppa a disciple, all right? This is an elevated term to describe a woman who is a close follower of Jesus here. There was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I, that's, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Sucks to be Dorcas, I guess. um, Actually, you know, it's interesting. Tabitha, it literally means gazelle. So, I don't know. know. So, gazelle here uh, was full of good works and acts of charity. Describes her as a virtuous person who's known in the community for being somebody who was full of good works and acts of mercy or charity. And Luke tells us that she was somebody probably fairly influential um, and she had a good reputation. And it describes the people who are surrounding her. She's died, and it says in those days, verse 37, uh, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, prepared her for burial, they laid her in an upper room, which would have been a bit weird in those days. Um, verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was nearby, sent two men urging him, please come uh, without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, uh, he took with him, he sorry, when they when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the wi- widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Okay, so what's going on is most commentators believe Dorcas or Tabitha is somebody who had been a patron to these widows, who had taken care of them. And so they're just showing off the things that she's given to them, right? Here's this tunic Dorcas made for me. I have a, like a Tabitha robe. Like, check it out. So that's what's going on, right? They're just saying, like, she made this stuff. She was practical. She was hands-on. She made things that improved people's lives. Widows were the most vulnerable people in, in that day, and she had been taking care of them. So naturally, there's a community of widows around her mourning, and they're all showing off the, their, her latest line of fashion. So... Uh, she was obviously a very simple person who used what she had for the sake of others. She's a, that's what a disciple would do. And so it's the opposite of the Jerusalem crew who were slow to accept others. She was apparently quick to be generous, and she's the kind of person who maybe had means, but when she died, it was a loss to the whole community. It means that when she died, we all realized that when she was alive, what she had done was enhanced the community rather than inhibited it. And 
I think that's enough vowels. Inhibited it. it that's all. She did not inhibit the community. That's much easier to say. And what, uh, this is what happens when we as Christ followers see needs around them and we meet them with joy. Uh, when we uh, take the means we have and connect them to the need the world has. This is what we're doing as a community this Christmas, right? As Susanna got up here last week to say, I'm minister in a school five days a week, and I see these families without means. And I have kids that don't come to school because they don't have shoes or clothes that are clean. And so we've said as a church, great, we're going to take care of four families that you work with every week at your school. And so that's why we have a little tree back there. It's to say, like, let's live like Tabitha. Let's take the means we have and connect it to a need that we're relationally connected and invested in. And so it's simple. It's just it's simple. This is how the kingdom moves. We say, well, we'll meet a need. We'll take some ornaments and buy some gift cards and lay them at the feet of the school and say, would you minister to these families and bless them because we've been blessed. Simple. And so uh, this is how we do that. By the way, if you missed that, that's what that tree's for. So, and if you have a gift card from last week, you can just leave it by the tree. There's a little bucket there or in the giving boxes. And so one of the, the present challenges in a culture like ours is that we all move towards individual happiness, right? It's, there's this entitlement that we breathe in every day, but the Spirit of God reorients us as servants. And so the legacy we want to leave behind as a church is the legacy of a Tabitha, right? Who there's a mark in our community when people say, this is what tangibly has impacted my life because this group of disciples lived faithfully to their calling. And as we read through Acts, um, we, we see that the Spirit of God moves not, you know, it's easy to look at Acts and go, oh, the heroes are Peter and Stephen and Paul but the reality is the mission moves forward in every city because of a bunch of people like Tabitha. That's a bunch of people who say, we're going to connect what we have been given to God's mission, to his world. And they live faithfully where they're planted and make practical impact where they are. And so we have a local mission and a local presence because the Spirit moves through our body, not just a program, but through you where you are, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, where God's planted you. And I think that's why Luke spends so much time on this otherwise seemingly insignificant person in this big story of Acts and the way the gospel moved throughout the entire Mediterranean world. We're going to stop and we're going to pay attention to Tabitha? Yes, because the church is made of Tabithas. And she's the point. She's not insignificant. The point is that there's no insignificant part of the body of Christ. Each part does its work, and the whole thing is built up in love. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. But the story um, includes the memory of Tabitha, right? and it's important because it also highlights Peter's ministry. Look at verse 40. Peter put them all outside. So he says, everybody leave. And he kneels down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he says, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. Uh, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, hey, everybody, he presented her alive. She's here. She's alive. Go ahead, pinch her. Right? And, and, and maybe... I don't know, he has him exit the room because 
Maybe he doesn't know if God's going to raise her from the dead. He's going to pray and he's going to ask, and maybe he doesn't know. I don't know. Or maybe he has them exit the room because that's simply what he watched Jesus do when he raised Jairus' daughter. And so he's just going based on precedent. I don't know. Either way, it's an incredible story, right? Like, there's a dead person who's now an alive person. But guess what? That is the Christian story, isn't it? That Jesus Christ, in his crucifixion, it looks like all hope is lost. And yet three days later, he's alive, victorious, presenting himself to people as alive. Eating fish with people by a fire, and people say, he's alive, we've seen him. And we're all here today, 2,000 years later, and we shouldn't be. But we are, as a testimony to the resurrection. We actually believe in a story where God can raise the dead and has in Christ. And so we have no reason to believe that God wants us to stop asking for miraculous things like this. Uh, There have been stories where we see, at least in my own life, where people are inexplicably better. But the point here is that Peter continues Jesus' ministry of the kingdom. And it's attested to with signs and wonders One of the things that's fascinating to me is the language. In Acts 9, Peter pronounces Tabitha kum, this Aramaic phrase for gazelle rise, right? In Mark 5, Jesus comes to uh, a home where a girl has died, and he's there with the family. He says, everybody go out, and then he says, Talitha kum, little girl, rise. Just a change of a letter. But what's interesting to me is I don't think Luke intends for this to just merely be a coincidence. I think Luke wants us to remember that time when Jesus pronounced Talitha kum, and now you have Peter, Jesus' follower, pronouncing, hey, Tabitha kum, right? Let's get gazelle, girl, get up, rise. Because here's the point. Um, The names are changed. The scene is only slightly different. But Tabitha, like the girl before, she'll die again, but the hope is that at the announcement of Jesus and the announcement of Peter, life comes. And, and, and it's a miracle because it's interesting to me that Peter now plays the role of Jesus. Peter comes in and he does almost the exact same thing in the almost exact same language and situation as Jesus had done. And I think what Luke is trying to say is we all now in Christ carry on Christ's ministry. That the mantle of Jesus' ministry of the kingdom is bestowed on the church. And so you have Peter playing the role of Jesus, and you have you at your workplace playing the role of Jesus, living and pointing to kingdom realities, pointing to life. It's a pronouncement that life has the last word. The resurrection is this fact and signpost of God's kingdom, and we all live in the land of death, but there's a Savior who's conquered death, and we point towards his life. And we do that in three ways. Um, first of all, I just want to wrap this up here, three so what kind of things. Like, what, what do you do with a story like this? What, like, we're, maybe you don't expect to rise anybody from the dead. I, I, to be really honest, that's not my priority. I, 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 it could happen. I'd love to see it happen. It hasn't happened. Um, doesn't mean we don't ask for it. But here's what I would say that we do. We assert life against death, first and foremost, in prayer. What happens is Peter gets everybody out of the room, and he starts praying. He doesn't start commanding, he starts praying. I, th- I think he wants to know, like, God, do you want me to raise her from the dead? I think there was a conversation happening there. And so before Peter denies Jesus in the garden, what does Jesus tell Peter? Hey, Satan's tried to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. 
Um, we're assured that even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes with groans too deep for words, that we're being prayed for by the Spirit. And so there's a pattern here that we need to notice, that in the face of all the forces of death in our world and decay in our world and corruption in our world and in our lives, prayer is actually this weapon against death. It's the weapon to disarm sin by confession. It's the weapon to oppose lies by praise. It's a weapon to put down envy by thanksgiving. It's a weapon to extinguish doubt by asserting faith. It's a weapon to increase love by intercession. Do you see that prayer is actually this way we assert life over death? We come to the Lord and we we go on and on about prayer, but what we encounter in the world is a world of death. And so whether it's the mess of sin in us or the mess that sin makes out of the world around us, prayer should be our first stop. Uh, Not as a shopping list for God, but as a way of drawing near to the one who is life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when I get near to him in prayer, I'm getting near to life. And so we need practices in our lives to sustain prayer. And I don't know where that exists for you, but one of the things I've started doing is before I open my phone in the morning and connect to a device, I have to just stop and go through the Lord's Prayer. Before any device, any screen is coming at me bringing death of busyness and to-do items and whatever, all of that, the first thing we do is just say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're starting the day from a place of prayer and moving through the day with prayer. The second thing we need to see here is our, our witness has effect. So the first thing we do is we move towards prayer. The second thing is we expect an effect from our witness. Luke says that when the story got out, people believed in the Lord. And we've been saying that the Spirit is the missionary and that we are the witnesses. But I don't want you to lose sight of the importance of your witness where you are. When a bunch of people live like the resurrection is real, when they're really secure in God's love, they live different. And when a bunch of people live like the resurrection is real and they're secure in God's love and they're living different, stories of transformation get out. People believe in the Lord as a result of witness. And so we plant churches because it's an opportunity for people to not just be spectators, but to be participants and to grow as an accurate witness. And it's just statistically true that churches that plant churches and church plants are the churches where we see the most conversion happen. Because guess what? It gets us all in the game. We say we, we, we aren't on the sidelines watching a thing happen. We're actually the church and God is happening in our church as we all work together. And so we can all be part of this thing, not as spectators, but as a community that lives like the resurrection is real, and we need to expect that there's results. We need to expect that there's an effect, and it may be slow, but we need to learn to be encouraged, expecting an effect. Finally, the third thing I'm going to end with this morning is we need to take away from this story that we should be like Tabitha, living like someone who has been raised. Um, when you've been raised, you've been given another life. You've been a recipient of grace. There was nothing Tabitha did to become alive again, okay? Like, there was no sense of earning anything. This happened to her. And, and, and you can bet that Tabitha jumped right back in to helping those widows and making every bit of difference. When the grace of God hits you, you, you realize that you've been raised with Christ. You're seated with him 
in his place of honor. That's what Ephesians 2 says. That uh, death for you is just a stop to resurrection. That the spirit is in you as a down payment of the life that is to come. And it radically rearranges your priorities. It reshapes how you understand yourself and your security and your meaning and your value. And that's the beautiful thing about this story. Tabitha didn't have power to raise herself. She needed someone else. And Jesus Christ has come to bring rescue. He is someone else who raises us up. And he takes us out of the self-focused mire of sin and turns us in toward fellowship with him and others. And we can be like Tabitha by being obedient to the gospel that summons us to life from death. It's a gospel that says, stop trying to use religion to make yourself better or more acceptable. Quit running toward self-sufficiency, but trust me to be enough. Let me be your rest and your value and your hope. Take my work to be yours and rest in it. Just rise in faith. So let the good news be good news today for you that you cannot actually make yourself spiritually alive, but we live like Tabitha because we've been made alive. We live from a place of gratitude. You can let Jesus make you alive with him by simply trusting. So we celebrate that every week. The climax of every Sunday is at the tables because we say that's the most important thing, what Christ has done for you. And we recenter our life on that reality that at the table we remember that he has been crucified for us in our place and been raised and we're raised with him. We have new life, the life of the Spirit flowing through us and we celebrate that grace. Let's pray.